Hi, I'm Neil Orford, and welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for November 2013. This is where we go through the last month's critical care literature and talk about the articles that caught our eye. So let's start off with the one that has everyone talking, the targeted temperature management at 33 degrees Celsius versus 36 degrees Celsius after cardiac arrest, the TTM trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a must-read article. This large Swedish therapeutic hypothermia in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest trial challenges our current paradigm of treatment. Now, the authors argue that therapeutic hypothermia needed another trial, despite the two previous positive trials, because the findings need to be confirmed or refuted and the issues around management of fever post-cooling haven't been adequately addressed. So what did they do? Well, this prospective multi-centre RCT compared temperature management of 33 degrees to temperature management at 36 degrees Celsius in 950 unconscious adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So they included adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a GCS less than 8, and they excluded those with asystole if it was unwitnessed, uh, suspected or known intracerebral hemorrhage or stroke, and if they had a temperature less than 30 degrees at the scene. The target temperature intervention involved rapidly cooling, and institutions could use whatever method they currently use, so surface cooling, intravascular devices, cold saline, etc. And they maintained the target temperature for 28 hours. After this, the temperature was increased or patients were rewarmed by 0.5 degrees Celsius per hour, aiming for a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius by 36 hours. Now, after the intervention period, that is the first 36 hours, the intention was to maintain the body temperature for unconscious patients below 37.5 degrees until 72 hours after the cardiac arrest with the use of fever control measures at the discretion of the sites. So in reality what we have is a temperature target of either 33 or 36 degrees for the first 28 hours, rewarming to 36 hours, then a targeted temperature of less than 37.5 degrees until 72 hours. At the 36-hour mark, mandatory sedation was uh, ceased, so patients could be awoken, assessed and extubated if needed. Patients were also assessed and prognosticated by a blinding clinician at 72 hours, and then patients were followed up out to 180 days. So the results... Patients were well matched at baseline. VFVT was the initial rhythm in the 77 to 80% of patients. Bystander CPR occurred in 73% of patients, and the average time to return of spontaneous circulation was 25 minutes. The primary outcome, 90 day mortality, was 50% in the 33 degree group compared to. 48% in the 36 degree group. That's a hazard ratio of 1.06 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.89 to 1.28 and a p value of 
so non-significant and very close clinical outcomes. The 180-day mortality, or poor neurological outcome, was 33 degrees Celsius group 54%, 36 degrees Celsius group 52%, hazard ratios 1.02, confidence intervals 0.88 to 1.16, P equals 0.78, no difference. There was no significant difference in the distribution of cerebral performance categories at 180 days between the groups. So in summary, therapeutic hypothermia at 33 or 36 degrees did not alter mortality or neurological recovery in a significant manner in a large population of adult patients following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This trial has already generated a lot of discussion and debate, and I'm sure that will continue. It seems that this is focused around a number of factors. The first is that if 33 and 36 degrees are equivalent in efficacy, should we just do 36 because it's easier, there are less complications from hypothermia? The second is that this wasn't just a trial comparing 33 to 36. It included a post-cooling temperature control strategy up to 72 hours and that's new for many of us so no matter what we choose as our target initial temperature 33 or 36 should we continue to control temperature out to 72 hours it's hard to have an accurate answer for that because no trial has compared the current cooling strategy of many units which is to control to 33 for 12 to 24 hours and then allow rewarming with passive control to this strategy, so we'll have to make up our own minds. And the last option, I guess, for some people would be to consider abandoning cooling altogether, even though I'm not sure that either this trial or the previous trials support that position. With all the interest the TTM trial has generated, perhaps this following trial has passed under the radar for many of us. This is in JAMA, and it was the effect of pre-hospital induction of mild hypothermia on survival and neurological status among adults with cardiac arrest. So with the TTM article just published, it is interesting to see another RCT on therapeutic hypothermia for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This prospective RCT enrolled 1,364 patients. 58% of patients attended with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest were ineligible due to unsuccessful CPR or other reasons included that were missed or too unstable. It included out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with the return of spontaneous circulation who were intubated and unconscious with any rhythm. They were randomised to standard care or standard care plus pre-hospital therapeutic hypothermia and they were cooled 34 degrees using IV saline and they were paralysed or sedated. Following hospital admission, they were treated per standard care and pre-trial, all the hospitals included, cooled VF to 34 degrees for up to 24 hours. So, But this wasn't controlled by the trial, so they just did whatever they normally did. So in the trial, 77% of the VF patients that survived to hospital admission had ongoing cooling, so 23% didn't. There was treatment separation. The end result of the study was that the time to achieve 34 degrees Celsius was one hour faster in the treatment group than the control group who were cooled in ED. The time to target temperature 
was 4.2 hours in the treatment group versus 5.5 hours in the standard group. In the VF patients, survival to hospital discharge was 62.7% in the therapeutic hypothermia or the intervention group versus 64.3% in the standard group. No difference. And there was also no difference in non-VF survival. And similarly, there was no difference in neurological outcome. The the cooled pre-hospital group or the intervention group had more re-arrest during transport to hospital and they had more pulmonary edema on chest x-ray, a lower PaO2, and they received more diuretics, um, which is obviously a result of the previous finding. Essentially, this trial of pre-hospital therapeutic hypothermia in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest delivered cooling one hour faster, but this resulted in no difference in outcome. The potential variation in post-hospital admission care introduces confounding, and in the light of the previous TTM trial, this could be interpreted as further evidence against the need to cool down to 34 degrees or less. Another out-of-hospital cardiac arrest trial was published in JAMA, and this is mechanical chest compressions and simultaneous defibrillation versus conventional cardiopulmonary resuscitation in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the LINK randomized trial. This trial of 2,589 patients was an international RCT that randomized out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients to either mechanical chest compression with the Lucas chest compression system or manual CPR, and both groups got ACLS according to guidelines. What they found is that the groups were well matched at baseline. VFVT was the initial rhythm in only 30% of patients. Um, there were 337 patients excluded because they'd had a defibrillation prior to the EMS crew arrival. Um, they found that defibrillation was delayed in the mechanical group by one and a half minutes and that they had less defibrillations in total. Now, it's worth noting that the authors um, point out that mechanical CPR algorithm of the Lucas compression system was three-minute cycles rather than the conventional two-minute cycles, so it's not surprising they had less defibrillations. There was no difference in the primary outcome, which was four-hour survival. So in the mechanical CPR group, it was 23.6% versus 23.7% in the manual. There was no difference in survival or neurological outcome up to six months, with survivors to six months, of which there were only 8%, um, having predominantly good neurological outcomes. And that would suggest that most patients with poor neurological recovery had died in the first six months. So in summary... Mechanical CPR device was not superior to manual CPR in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in a population who had a fairly low incidence of VFVT and, not surprisingly, they had poor outcomes at six months. In the New England Journal of Medicine, there was a mitral valve repair versus uh, replacement for severe ischemic MR study. Um, this is just of some interest because uh, intensive care deals with a lot of mitral valve surgery. So this is trying to answer the question, does, does sort of cordy-sparing mitral valve repair offer similar or outcomes to mitral valve replacement in chronic severe ischemic MR? So that's a morphologically normal valve with a dilated annulus um, and just a failure of the leaflets to coapt, so not degenerative disease. So they enrolled 447 patients with severe MR, and that was determined by 
either an ERO of greater than 0.4 centimetres square, um, severe MR features like a jet area to left atrial area, width of the vena contractor, density of the CWD profile of mitral systolic function, uh, pulmonary vein systolic flow patterns and left-sided chamber dimensions. They randomised to uh, repair, which was just an aneuplasty ring or replacement, and the replacements did preserve the subvalvular apparatus. And the primary endpoint was the degree of LV reverse remodelling at one year, and that was assessed by ECHO, and there are a whole lot of secondary endpoints, including adverse events and recurrence. So the groups were similar at baseline. There were similar outcomes at one year regarding remodelling. Uh, the one-year mortalities were not significantly different. They were 14.3% and 17.6% in the replacement group. There was an increased recurrence of moderate to se severe MR in the repair group, 32.6% uh, versus 2.3%, uh, and there was no difference in quality of life. So in conclusion, overall the procedures produced similar functional outcomes, although there's a lot more recurrence in the repair group. Now this wasn't symptomatically an issue in the first year, but perhaps with longer-term follow-up this may become a concern. In critical care medicine, we have the association between hyperoxia and mortality after stroke, a multi-center cohort study. So optimum oxygen levels and the possible deleterious effects of hyperoxia are receiving a bit of attention uh, in various fields of critical care. This retrospective multi-center cohort study investigates the relationship between hyperoxia and outcome in 2,894 ventilated stroke patients. They found a higher 28-day mortality with hyperoxia versus normoxia, and the crude odds ratio is 1.7 with 95% confidence intervals of 1.3 to 2.1, a relationship that persisted with multivariate analysis. So the adjusted odds ratio was 1.2. So this is hypothesis generating and builds a case perhaps for studies of controlled oxygenation in this population. It's also sobering. The 28-day mortality in the intubated stroke group was 52% overall for this population. Going back to JAMA, we have the ROSE Acute Heart Failure Randomised Trial. So it's been a while since we've seen dopamine appear in the literature, or particularly the critical care literature, and this study into its effect in acute heart failure and renal dysfunction can be added to the growing body of evidence suggesting it is ineffective in critical care or heart failure. The author's rationale for the trial was that the treatment goal for acute heart failure is to decongest the lungs while avoiding renal dysfunction and dopamine pharmacologically may achieve this. In addition, they look at nasiratide, a recombinant beta-type naturetic approved for acute heart failure. So what did they do? So the ROSE, which stood for Renal Optimization Strategies Evaluation Trial, compared low-dose dopamine, which is 2 mics per kilo per minute, or low-dose nasiratide, 0.005 mics per kilo per minute, or placebo, diuretic therapy in acute heart failure with renal dysfunction. They included 360 hospital patients with acute heart failure and a GFR of 15 to 60 within 24 hours of hospital admission. Baseline characteristics were similar. The co-primary endpoints, cumulative urine volume and change in cystatin C, were assessed at 72 hours and weren't different between groups. 
For secondary endpoints, we're not significantly different for decongestion or renal function or death or adverse events or hospitalisation. There were differences in treatment failure, e.g. more neseratide was stopped for hypotension. In summary, low-dose dopamine and low-dose neseratide are not superior to placebo for preventing renal dysfunction in acute heart failure. Next, we've got two echo or transthoracic echo or ultrasound studies in uh, intensive care medicine. So the first is guidewire localization by transthoracic echo during central venous catheter insertion, a periprocedural method to evaluate catheter placement. So this prospective single center study examines the role of TTE to facilitate central venous line placement. 98 patients having 101 lines were included and after ultrasound-guided venous puncture, TTE was used to identify wire placement in the right atrium. And they used a subcostal window, and what they did is they identified the wire in the right atrium, and they measured how far the line should go in and try to confirm uh, tip placement in the right atrium. Uh, then they also performed at the end lung ultrasound to look for pneumothorax. So they used that lung sliding and seashell sign, and, and there were none. Overall, this study found that using ultrasound to guide needle insertion into the vein and show position of the wire in the right atrium aided catheter tip position and excluded pneumothorax. Now, obviously, there were no pneumothoraxes, so it's hard to know if it would have found any if they were there. Now, this could be the beginning of a CVC insertion process that does away with the need for post-insertion chest x-ray in the majority of cases. What they didn't answer was what you do if you can't see the wire, but you're pretty sure sure that it's intravascular, so that is, if the wire is malpositioned. Uh, do you reposition, um, remove it and start again, ignore or x-ray? Um, and you would suspect that either reposition or x-ray are the answers. Um, the second ultrasound study in intensive care medicine was ultrasound-guided central venous cannulation is superior to quick-look ultrasound and landmark methods among inexperienced operators, a prospective randomised study. So this study compared quick-look ultrasound, or what some of us might call static ultrasound, with a, with a skin mark to ultrasound-guided or real-time um, to a third arm, which was just identifying landmark techniques for insertion of femoral or jugular CVCs. In 118 patients, procedures were performed by 10 inexperienced residents with an overall success rate of 81%. Uh, they found that the ultrasound-guided or real-time group had the highest success rate, which was 100%, compared to 73 74% in the landmark and static group. Um, they had the lowest number of attempts, one, compared to three in the other two groups. The shortest time to cannulation, four minutes, compared to ten and eight in the other two. Uh, the lowest rate of mechanical complications, there was zero compared to nine to 16. Um, and it would appear that this is further evidence supporting ultrasound, in particular that real-time ultrasound is superior to other techniques, in particular when inexperienced operators are at the wheel.
Again, in intensive care medicine, we have a paediatric paper, and this is Improved Clinical and Economic Outcomes in Severe Bronchiolitis with Preemptive Nasal CPAP as a Ventilatory Strategy. So severe bronchiolitis is the leading cause of admission to PICUs, and so the respiratory support provided deserves some scrutiny. There's been a recent increase in interest in high-flow nasal cannula and nasal CPAP compared to mechanical ventilation, and this trial adds to the literature. This retrospective cohort of 525 infants with severe bronchiolitis compared respiratory support and outcomes in two distinct time periods. In 1996 to 2000, they only used mechanical ventilation, and in 2006 to 2010, the primary support was nasal CPAP. Now, in the first period, 81% received mechanical ventilation and 18% nasal cannula, with a duration of mechanical ventilation of 6.9 days, a PICU length of, say, 9 days, nosocomial pneumonia 24%, ARDS 9.3%, and a mean PICU cost of $23,000. In the second period, it was much lower. 12% received mechanical ventilation, 55% nasal CPAP, 32% nasal cannula, the duration of ventilation of 5.1 days, PQ length of, say, 5 days, uh, nosocomial pneumonia rate of 9.9%, ARDS 4.5%, and a mean PQ cost of $14,900. So they're all a lot less. So this is a retrospective historical study, and one could argue that high-flow nasal cannula has further moved this debate away from mechanical ventilation and nasal CPAP. But it does provide interesting information to suggest that the move to less invasive therapies in infants provides better outcomes and is cheaper. So finally, the article in Critical Care Medicine, Structure, Process and Annual ICU Mortality Across 69 Centres, the United States Critical Illness and Injury Trials Group Critical Illness Outcomes Study, So organisational structure, that is the conditions under which patient care is provided, and processes of care, that is the activities that constitute patient care, in an ICU directly influence clinical outcomes. The factors that have been previously shown to influence ICU outcome include some structure-driven factors like the type of ICU, the caseload, open or closed format, 24-hour intensive staffing, nurse staffing, staff workload, And then there's process-driven factors like disease-driven interventions, that is, lung protective ventilation for ARDS, or process-driven interventions like protocols versus physician-directed things like checklists. This large study, 69 ICUs is pretty big, characterised the structure and processes in ICUs participating in the United States Critical Illness and Injury Trials Group Critical Illness Outcome Study and investigated their relationship with mortality after adjusting for these variables. They found that 100% of participating ICUs had intensivists, 58% were closed, and 42% had 24-hour intensivists. The mean bed-to-nurse ratio was 1.8 to 1. Multidisciplinary rounds were performed in 41% of ICUs, and 93% of ICUs had 10 or more protocols in place although only 48% used a rapid antibiotic protocol and only 48% had a palliative care protocol. After multivariate analysis, annual ICU mortality was lower in surgical ICUs compared to medical. That's not surprising. ICUs with a daily plan of care review, 
ICUs with a lower bed nurse ratio and 24-hour intensive cover and closed status were not associated with a lower ICU mortality. So overall, the primary factors that were strongly associated with a lower ICU mortality and that units may have some say in were improved daily team communication strategies like multidisciplinary rounds and a lower bed-to-nurse ratio. Well, that's it for 2013 from Critique. I hope you had a great year and I look forward to joining you again in Journal Club next year. Take care.